You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The whole idea that companies now can be considered combatants and can be direct targets in a conflict is is a very significant uh, point for discussion at the moment. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben has the story of the U.S. government declassifying a report on consumer privacy. I've got the story of deepfakes entering U.S. politics. And later in the show, my conversation with Dr. Biliana Lilly, discussing her co-authored paper for SciCon, Business at War, the IT companies helping to defend Ukraine. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, Ben, we've got a lot to cover this week. Why don't you start things off for us here? So my story uh, was posted really everywhere, but we're using a story from The Wired. The U.S. is openly stockpiling dirt on all its citizens. (laughs) Getting right to the point there. (laughs) Uh, And this refers to a report released by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. The report was drafted in 2022, January of 2022, but it's just being released now due to requests from members of Congress, including Senator Ron Wyden. So this is declassified. It has been declassified. Okay. Okay. This report was drafted by an advisory committee of senior officials. We don't know exactly who those senior uh, officials are. Their names have been redacted in the report, Hmm. uh, but generally they are former intelligence officials. Hmm. And the report is about the extent to which government agencies are using data, uh, commercially available data, um, that is open source, uh, and using it for law enforcement purposes. Uh, So the report in its executive summary, I think, makes very clear two things. One is that the value of purchasing publicly available data that third parties collect on us through the course of our ordinary internet browsing is extremely valuable for both intelligence purposes and for law enforcement purposes. Mm. The information is vast. Uh, Most people leave a, a very clear trace of their activities on the internet. Uh, It leaves a lot of valuable information about us. Of course, that's going to be something of great value to law enforcement. Uh, The other side of it is this presents major civil liberties concerns, and that's one of the things that this report acknowledges. Hmm. With the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution, we have the right uh, to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures. Uh, And so we have a procedure that goes into the government collecting data on our stuff, on our property. 
and it requires a warrant issued based on probable cause by a neutral magistrate. That's very well established. Mm-hmm. The problem here is when we're talking about commercially available information, uh, that all of those procedural steps are simply stomped over. Uh We don't have any uh, existing standards to deal with simply purchasing publicly available information, even though that information can be just as personal and revealing as information uh, obtained via warrant or via subpoena. Hmm. Uh, So that's really the main concern here. They issue a series of recommendations uh, about how the intelligence community and law enforcement agencies Uh, should handle the acquisition and treatment of this information. Um, For one, they recommend that the intelligence community develop a multi-layered process to catalog, to the extent feasible, um, the information that IC elements acquire. They admit this is going to be a complex undertaking. I think one of the most eye-opening aspects of this entire report was that they really don't have sufficient data on the extent to which this uh, information is being used by Hmm. agencies or which agencies have used them and and are using them. Uh, I think in their words, the intelligence community can't understand and improve how it deals with this information unless it knows exactly what agencies are doing with it. Hmm. Uh, The second recommendation is that the intelligence community should develop standards and procedures for this collection, um, governing uh, and requiring regular reevaluation of acquisition and use decisions. Uh, So just a little internal oversight on it. Uh, And the third point that they include for recommendations um, is that the intelligence community should develop more precise guidelines to identify and protect sensitive information that implicates privacy and civil liberties concerns. Uh, And they have a bunch of suggestions in the report that get to the specificity of these more broad recommendations. Hmm. So their conclusion is that um, this data is very powerful for intelligence uh, and for law enforcement, but is increasingly sensitive for individual privacies and civil liberties, even though the data is anonymized. As we know, you can de-anonymize it pretty easily if you uh, put the puzzle pieces together. Right. And therefore... Uh, basically, in the recommendation of these senior advisors, the intelligence community needs to act. They need to define policies to govern acquisition and treatment. Um, and uh, this is certainly something that not only the intelligence community is going to be looking at, but but members of Congress um, who have already issued a series of proposals on this, I think are going to have to take a second look given the severity uh, of what we see in this report. And, of course, this is uh, prompted by requests from Senator Ron Wyden, who sort of takes the lead on a lot of this consumer privacy stuff. Yeah, so Senator Ron Wyden uh, is at the uh, center of every single story uh, that relates to data privacy vis-a-vis Congress and the federal government. Yeah. Um, so he is uh, he was the person who demanded that this uh, report be declassified, and I think he will be at the forefront for any reform efforts, including legislation that's already been introduced in Congress, to set some type of standard uh, around the collection of this information. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. I think the obvious solution, if there were the political will, is to require the equivalent of a warrant for any information that, in the absence of this commercially available data, uh, would require a warrant. Hmm. So anything that uh, is somebody's person's uh, papers, effects, uh, physical property, etc., any uh, data to which a person has a reasonable expectation of privacy— the federal government could step in and say, for Fourth Amendment purposes, 
there should be no distinction between purchased data and data that we can obtain via warrant and via subpoena. Um, is that actually going to happen? I certainly have my doubts for a number of reasons. One, uh, as this report admits, the intelligence gathered through this data is extremely valuable. Uh, and I think the law enforcement community and the intelligence community don't want to give up these capabilities so easily. That would be uh, very cumbersome on them and would make their investigations more difficult. That certainly filters down to members of Congress uh, who will hear from the intelligence community saying, hey, we stopped XYZ incidents because of commercially available data yeah. uh, that we receive from somebody's app browsing or internet browsing history. Uh, and then, you know, the general point I always make uh, is that inaction is the norm when it comes to Congress. Yeah. Uh, last session, I think many of us were cautiously optimistic about comprehensive data privacy legislation and for a variety of reasons, including some that were very parochial. Uh, Speaker Pelosi at the time uh, didn't want the federal government to preempt California's robust data privacy law. Mm. Uh, and she was the Speaker of the House at the time and had a lot of influence. That's another thing that just tends to happen in Congress. It's much easier for something not to happen than it is for, for something to happen. Mm. I can't help thinking that this is, um, we're dealing with what to do with the horse once it's left the barn rather than preventing the horse from leaving the barn, right? Like, why don't we come at the source of this and, and as, as you say, have, if we had some sort of federal data privacy law that restricted this information from being gathered and aggregated and sold to begin with, then we don't have this problem. But we have, but until that we do that, then it seems to me like, um, be it through a, it seems to me like the government could always find a way to separate themselves from those gathering the information. In other words, let's say they're selling, they're buying it from a data broker now. Maybe they could buy it from a contractor who bought it from the data broker who bought, you know. Right. You see where I'm going with this? They separate themselves as much as they can from the actual data collection. Right. It becomes so diffuse that it's like, well, you know, who's to say that we had any active role in getting our hands on this information? It was just kind of... Uh, yeah, it was posted yeah. in the public square. We, you know. <laughs> Which it is. I mean, it is right. open source data that we're all in one way or another willfully giving uh, all these companies and, and third-party data brokers. Yeah, I'd put, I'd put air quotes around willfully. You know, oh, I, totally. I, you know, we're not... I'm not saying, hey, track me. You know, none of us are, and yet that's what's happening. Nobody is aware of the... To the extent, uh, or very few people are aware. I'm sure our listeners are among the, the few and the proud who are aware. <laughs> uh, but most people have no idea the extent of the information that's being collected on us just in the course of ordinary activities. The apps we download, um, you know... Should I uh, allow Panera to view my location so it's easier for me to locate a sandwich shop? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. That's a rich collection of data that just with a click of a button you are providing. Uh, so there's the fact that people don't really know what, what data is being collected. Uh, and then the fact that even the intelligence community itself isn't really aware. They don't have any institutional knowledge of the extent of the collection that's happening inside the government. So mm -hmm. we're just flying completely blind here, both as consumers and as government agents. That's why I think the first step really is some proper oversight here where there's mandatory reporting of key statistics in terms of which agencies are using this data, 
something measuring the volume of the data being collected, that's certainly a, a valuable first step. But as you say, I mean, one of the problems with all of these issues is by the time anyone's actually paying attention beyond Ron Wyden, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, so, you know, other members of Congress, the general public, the Wall Street Journal, Wired, by the time they're paying attention, the well, not to mix metaphors here, but the cat is already out of the bag. We're already doing this at a, at a very large scale. Yeah. And this makes me think of uh, what's happening in the world of AI, where we're having these kind of high-level conversations about the ethics of it and how far is this really going to go. Uh, all of those really important conversations. But in the meantime, the technology is proliferating. More and more people are using it, and we might blow our chance to actually get a handle on it uh, and prevent uh, the absolute worst outcomes. So it's just, it's certainly something that worries me that our legal system and even our media is, is just behind the reality of what's already happening. Is it plausible that... Members of Congress may be being lobbied by uh, federal law enforcement agencies to say, hey, look, you know, we don't want to lose this capability. I think they absolutely could be lobbying uh, some of these intelligence agencies. I also think because this type of data collection exogenously is profitable for the companies collecting it and for third-party brokers. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can make a sense that there's a lot of money in this. Uh, And when you have an advantage for the companies collecting the data, for the brokers who buy it and sell it, and for the government who gets valuable intelligence, like how do we break that chain where everybody's incentive is more data collection? Mm -hmm. Uh, The only way to do it is to raise a giant fuss uh, and that's what members of Congress are, are trying to do here. But it's just so hard to know how to raise a sufficient fuss so that something actually happens. That's what's so frustrating. Right. Is, um, you know, we see so many stories like this. This is one of the more high-profile ones because we're getting an actual report from the Director of National Intelligence. But it just kind of, in the midst of other news stories, falls by the wayside. Um, it's off the radar of most members of Congress. It's just not something that they're spending a lot of time thinking about. So it's just really hard to effectuate change. And I think that's something that's frustrated for people who are in this world and, and people who care about data privacy. It seems to me like we need, uh, you know, an, an agent of chaos, a, a, a you know, a, a John Oliver uh, to come in and um, buy up a bunch of this information about members of Congress you know, post a map showing their their every movement. and you know, He, like, literally did that, though. I think he had a segment. He where, threatened it. Yeah, he threatened it. But somehow, like, it, it, it didn't follow He didn't reveal through. the names. Right, yeah. right, right. And so I think he was, I mean, to me, that was a shot across the bow. And who knows, maybe he got brushed back, you know, either by HBO's legal team or members of, who knows, you know, but... But it seems to me like if it's going to take something like that where Congress gets uh, affected personally in some sort of very embarrassing, visceral kind of way uh, in a bipartisan nature, right, <laughs> right? where they're all exposed, uh, then that will get their attention. But until then, uh, I think they... It just it hasn't risen to the the level of of them to really focus. I on mean, it. you've used the example in the past of how Congress quickly passed a law, um, you know, regulating the extent to which the government could search people's video rental records, right? And libraries, yeah, and libraries. checking out library books. Yep. Um, yep. There are a couple of issues. One I see is that we're just more 
uh, numbed by scandal that it just doesn't pack the same punch that it used to. Mm. Um, just given everything we've gone through in, in recent political history. Right. Uh, and just our media landscape is different. There isn't like a Walter Cronkite that's going to just uh, read the news that everybody's going to trust on this. Everybody gets their news from different sources. Mm-hmm. It's very ideologically biased. Um, and even if there was some bipartisan expose, so much of its impact would depend on how it's being covered. And it's, if it's being covered as like a political hit job by John Oliver, right. then maybe it has the reverse effect uh, and it motivates lawmakers to hunker down even more and and be resistant to giving into this mob. So right, right. I, I don't mean, I don't want to be a pessimist, but it is just, it's it's hard to see a realistic path to getting out of this doom loop uh, where we keep finding out about these uh, practices that invade our privacy and and civil liberties, and we keep seeing inaction from Congress to actually do something about it. Yeah. Being pessimistic about Congress is is an evidence-based approach, right? (laughs) It sure is. Yes, it sure is. All right. Well, it's an interesting report for sure. And uh, as you said, it's been covered in a lot of different places. We will have a link to the coverage from Wired here in our show notes. But uh, this is getting a lot of attention uh, all over the media. So, uh, yeah, definitely worth reading and and checking out. Uh, My story this week uh, comes from the Washington Post. This is an article from Aaron Blake. Uh, and it's titled, DeSantis Ushers in Our Fake Images in Politics Nightmare. We have been talking about this. We've been warning about this. I think we all knew this day would come. It's happening. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I guess if you were going to place your bets, it would have been realistic to say that this round of, of this election season would be the one where we would see AI generated images uh, used in political ads. And- yeah, this is this is going to be that election. Um, you know, the article here talks about uh, ad, I believe, from the super PAC of Ron DeSantis. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's certainly, that's not the first time that AI-generated images have been used in an ad. Right. So I don't think this is something that's specific to any candidate or any party. The weapon is now out there to the extent that it's a weapon used against political opponents. Yeah. Uh, and talk about a cat that we're not going to be able to put back in the bag. Right. So the details here is that uh, according to this report, um, the DeSantis campaign uh, spun up an ad, a TV ad, and it has images of Donald Trump and Anthony Fauci hugging. Uh, And of course, as we know, Governor DeSantis from Florida is uh, running against uh, former President Trump for the Republican nomination for president. Uh, and this is a very heated competition. These two are are going at each other. There's lots of name calling. You know, they're they're the gloves are off. Sure. Right? <laughs> so uh, this image, which uh, the DeSantis campaign would, would uh, think would be to their advantage, because uh, folks on the Republican Party, folks on the right, of course, Dr. Fauci is not popular. No. Nope. So to have, <laughs> to say the least, so to have an image of former President Trump uh, embracing Dr. Fauci, you know, literally, which leads to the figurative <laughs> notion of it, um, could be damaging to former President Trump. And uh, the fact that this is being done so blatantly in a high level campaign here, you know, this wasn't 
they weren't trying this out on the lower levels, right? They went straight to the high level of high level campaign um, and are doing this uh, without shame or <laughs> they're just going for it. Uh, here we are. Yeah, I mean, I think there are also some distinctions with uh, this particular ad mm-hmm. um, versus other instances where we've seen AI-generated images in political uh, advertising. Uh, so here, the images look, I mean, I've seen them, they look more realistic. It's certainly plausible. Uh, if you look really closely, you can you can tell that it's AI-generated. Yeah. Fauci kind of looks like a cartoon version of himself. Uh-huh. But if you're not looking closely, it not only looks realistic, but like in people's minds, Trump and Fauci did have hundreds of press conferences with one another. Right. They were on the same team. So it's very plausible that uh, at least to an an average voter that they would have hugged at some point. So it's not something that, um, you know, most people would just assume is fake. Like Mm -hmm. one of the things they mentioned in this article, Ron DeSantis Riding an actual rhinoceros, uh, (laughs) which Donald Trump put an uh, an ad out to that effect, trying to prove that uh, DeSantis is a rhino Republican in name only. That's obviously false. Or an ad that Trump put out, uh, which had uh, AI-generated voices of Ron DeSantis, Elon Musk, and others, including a mock devil, Adolf Hitler, spelled incorrectly, and Dick Cheney. (laughs) Okay. Like, that was obviously such absurd parody that nobody would actually think that that was representing something realistic. Right. So this ad is the first time that it's like, it's something plausible. uh, It's something that's well done and there is no transparency. So there's no disclaimer at the bottom of the page saying this is AI generated. uh, This image is AI generated. Mm -hmm. Um, To your your knowledge, is there anything within the rules of political campaigns that would require any sort of, you know, we, we, I remember when it happened that, um, uh, candidates had to start saying, you know, I'm Joe Blow and I approve this message, you yep. know, at the end of every beginning or end of every ad. Is there anything in there that requires any, uh, you know, uh, notice of, Accuracy and image generation. As the words are leaving my mouth, I realize how absurd they sound. I don't think so. I mean, there are regulations on what you can put in political ads. You okay. mentioned one of them. That was from the Bipartisan Campaign Finance Reform Act from the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, there are restrictions on using military images. Uh, so uh-huh. if you um, have served in the military and you take pictures, uh, you have pictures of yourself in a military uniform, you have to put a disclaimer saying the use of military images um, doesn't imply an endorsement from the Defar- Department of Defense, et cetera, something like that. Okay. As far as I know, there are no rules about AI uh, that exist yet. I think the federal government is just starting to address this problem. Right, um, right. And they're addressing it from a very broad sense that I don't know when it's going to get granular enough that we can actually regulate political advertisements. I mean, I think a good enterprising lawmaker could draft a bill that says uh, for federal races over which the federal government has jurisdiction, um, you have to, if you're going to use AI generated images, there has to be a uh, a very conspicuous text at the bottom saying this image is AI generated. Yeah. Well, and to that point, this article does uh, uh, point to some previous reporting from the Washington Post about how um, evidently Representative Yvette Clark, who's a Democrat from New York, ah, yes. uh, did uh, 
uh, sponsor some legislation that would require disclosure of AI-generated content in political ads. So I guess to my point, she was that enterprising lawmaker. Uh, <laughs> so right. she, she did file this bill uh, about a month ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as this article points out, it's going to be very hard for this bill to move in Congress. She's part of the political minority, um, and Republicans have generally been more reluctant uh, to embrace any regulation on political speech, yeah. uh, especially in campaign advertising. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that's, I don't think that's going anywhere. I mean, you do have a couple of options if you feel that you've been the vic- victim of AI-generated images. Right. Um, the very unlikely uh, solution would be some type of defamation lawsuit, but given the high legal standard there, I don't think that would succeed in this mm-hmm. context. The other is, uh, I'm not sure if this is fighting fire with fire, but getting the word out there that these are fake AI-generated images. And there is now this tool on Elon Musk's Twitter, uh, and not to focus too much on Twitter, but Twitter is largely where the political conversation happens. I think other platforms are um, better for influencers and pop culture, that sort of thing. But Twitter is where uh, political figures interact. Uh, And there's this new feature, Community Notes, where... Uh, you can put something in context or fact check something and that fact check can be endorsed by community members and there would be a little disclaimer uh, below a tweet with that AI imagery that says this is generated by AI. Mm -hmm. That's what happened here. Um, So under this video now is one of those community notes saying these hugs didn't actually happen. Right. Um, That doesn't do any good if the ad runs on your local TV affiliate. Most certainly not. Yeah. Uh, So that the local TV affiliate is is the biggest problem. I mean, you can put disclaimers on things like YouTube videos, but yeah, I mean, running on cable news or or local TV is going to be a different problem entirely. Mm Mm-hmm. What happens if if we—let's take this to the absurd extreme here. What happens if uh, one of these candidates posts— uh, a video of their opponent, and they literally put words in their mouth. They have some kind of deep fake, and and uh, you know they they have them saying something that is the opposite of something that they would say. Is that just uh, you know grounds for a lawsuit, or w- what happens then? Well, that's a great question. Uh, it could potentially be grounds for a lawsuit, though it's very difficult to prove. Um, the First Amendment considerations are quite strong, given that this is political speech, even though it's something that's false. Uh, I don't know how a legal challenge would fare. Uh, there's also the pressure that you could put on individual news stations to pull advertising. Uh, which has sometimes worked in the past for something that's so fundamentally misleading. Mm-hmm. You go to the news uh, sources themselves and say, uh, you're undermining faith in our elections by running this advertisement. And occasionally that works if you put enough pressure on them. So hmm. that could happen too. Uh, but I, I don't think we're far off uh, at all from things like deep fake showing up in political advertising. I mean, a- AI-generated voice is getting so much better than it used to be. Yeah. Even just a few months ago, um, it's it's coming. And I don't think as a society we're prepared to deal with it, especially since we know that false information can proliferate so quickly across uh, social media. It's it's something that's definitely going to be a problem. Well, I think about the, um, you know, during uh, former President Trump's uh, initial campaign, 
Um, the um, what was the what's the name for the tape when he was in the bus? Uh, you know the, the Access Hollywood the tape. Access Hollywood yeah. tape, right? So, in a situation like that where he was not on camera, you know, it was a remote, like a wireless microphone right. recording. Uh, so you don't have any issues with the video part of it. Like mm-hmm. his lips don't have to match what he's saying. Uh, even just a few years after that happened, uh, it's the Wild West of catching someone on a hot mic. You could have them say anything. Right. Uh, and obviously, uh, you know, the 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 Access Hollywood uh, tape um, uh, didn't keep President Trump from becoming president. Right. Uh, but... Uh, I mean, I get- you could ruin somebody's political career if it's believable. Right. Um, you know, the other side of the coin is it adds a layer of plausible deniability for the candidates. Because mm. even for something they did say, they could say, that could have been AI generated. We right. saw that with Elon Musk in a lawsuit uh, in his capacity as CEO of Tesla, where uh, he made some—didn't we, we have a story on this? He made some representation uh, at a public presentation. Yeah. And then implied to the core that that might have been AI generated, even though, like, actual people were there and saw it. <laughs> so— so just the ability to inject doubt. Yeah, it's injecting reasonable doubt uh, into the minds of voters and just making our political process that much more confusing and uncertain, which is not great. Yeah. <laughs> oh, interesting times. Interesting it times. sure is. Uh, all right. Well, <sighs> long so hard sigh. To know. Yeah. It's just so, yeah, uh, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a great example of... Um, how hard it is to keep up with technology, right? How hard it is for policy and our political system to keep up with technology. They run at different tempos. Right. 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 No, I completely agree. And the technology is always two or three steps ahead of our political system and our legal system. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we are frequently seeing the consequences of that. Yeah. All right. Well, we will have a link to these stories in the show notes. And of course, we would love to hear from you. If there's something you'd like us to consider for the show, you can email us. It's caveat at n2k.com. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Biliana Lilly. Uh, We're discussing a paper that she co-authored for SciCon. Uh, It's titled Business at War, the IT Companies Helping to Defend Ukraine. Here's my conversation with Dr. Biliana Lilly. 
we chose to write on this topic already back in September of last year because my co-authors and I noticed how there were several companies that were in the news and their contributions to Ukraine were discussed. And a lot of the cybersecurity community has been writing about the cyber dimension of the war in Ukraine, and they have covered the contributions of foreign companies. And one of the reasons why Ukraine managed to stay online for that long is because of the contributions of foreign IT companies. But we couldn't find one research or article that systematically analyzed the contributions of different companies, categorized them, and also assessed the risks and benefits for the different companies from providing these contributions. And I got really curious about this topic, and I also wanted to understand why are companies helping? Why now? Because this this whole massive support was so overt and so instantaneous. As soon as the war started, companies openly started providing support free of charge. And even actually before Ukraine was invaded by Russia through conventional means, there was already conflict happening in cyberspace and some companies have already been providing assistance for months prior to the conventional invasion. So I was very curious to know what was the the risk assessment of those companies? Why did they decide to to help? Were they aware? They, they were aware of the risks, but despite that, why did they decide to assist so overtly? Can we discuss a, a little bit of the historical precedent here? I mean, I, I think about You know, going back to World War II here in the U.S., uh, we had manufacturers who would shift from making cars and trucks and things like that to being on a wartime footing and making tanks and jeeps and those sorts of things. Are there any parallels here or or is this really a new domain? Because of the nature of this conflict, because this was a country, a neighbor of Russia, a country that is not a part of NATO, is not a part of the of the European Union. I think this is a rather unprecedented scenario and we can draw parallels with past conflicts but they will be limited. Hmm. And I think in recent years and recent conflicts there hasn't been any support that's been provided at that scale. So I would say that from that perspective the support that has been offered has been unprecedented. And and what specifically are we talking about the types of support that are being offered here? So we looked at a number of companies, about 20, and we only covered publicly disclosed contributions and support that hasn't been or assistance that, has, assistance that hasn't been provided under non-disclosure agreements. And we categorized the different contributions into three categories, hardware, software, and cyber services. It's the simplest way possible. Hmm. I've heard some companies from because we also reached out to the companies that we identified in our paper. And I have to thank publicly the, those that responded. We had a whole questionnaire and they and then followed up with additional questions. And some companies were very helpful and uh, provided really clear answers. Um, some of them had slightly different categorization of their assistance. For example, they would include also raising awareness about certain threats in cyberspace to Ukraine, but also their clients abroad, clients and partners outside of Ukraine. So we didn't include that category. We also didn't include social media companies, which I just came back from SICON, which is NATO's conference that takes place every year in Estonia. I now know that social media companies have been incredibly helpful as well. And that's another category that I hope someone 
I hope someone looks at our research and uses it as a baseline and continues to expand on it. And I think that's another category that we should consider um, when we examine the support of companies, um, foreign companies to Ukraine going forward. What are the diplomatic elements in play here? I mean, obviously, the United States has its own diplomatic interests in, in this war. So if I'm an independent company here and I'm headquartered in the U.S., do I check in with the government before I offer up my help? It's a really good question. So from my conversations or our conversations with different companies, when, when we ask them about their decision-making process, I don't think the U.S. government came up. I would imagine that was a consideration, but the two main considerations that the companies had at the time were, first, should they exit Russia? And then should they, and Ukraine? So two decisions here. First, the the exit strategy was one uh, decision category. And then the second is, should we provide assistance? And what are the risks and benefits from doing so? And, but also... Although the question of whether the companies consulted with U.S. government didn't come up, when we looked at the companies that have that we're examining, the companies that have provided assistance to Ukraine since the beginning of the war, most of them are U.S.-based. And the United States was very clear in its position that it is supporting Ukraine and is condemning Russia's actions. So the companies more or less followed U.S. foreign policy. And did any of them, to your knowledge, you suffer... Uh, any real consequences here? You talk about pulling out of Russia. Or was that a big market for some of these companies? For some of them, yes, but not as big as, for example, China, if we're going to look forward to potential other conflicts. Hmm. More significant threats that the companies have faced include intellectual property theft, a lot higher risk of confidentiality, integrity, availability of their data and in communications in Ukraine, some of them employees have faced harassment by Russian aligned actors, most likely on behalf of the Russian government or at least um, actors that have pledged allegiance to the Russian government. We also had a clear threat uh, signaled or stated from the Kremlin indica- when the Kremlin said last October that commercial satellites will also be considered uh, participants in the war and could be targets for the Russian government. As we look forward here, how does this inform the future of warfare? I think we're going to draw lessons from this conflict for years to come, if not decades. So far, what I could say from our research is that a lot of the assistance was provided ad hoc and companies didn't have a playbook. A lot of them took significant risk when they intervened in the the beginning and started providing assistance. So what we're learning is that the provision and coordination of assistance could be streamlined and facilitated a lot better if we had playbooks and prepared in advance with something like, for example, multi-stakeholder incident response playbooks that we create similarly to the incident response playbooks that we have today. But instead of just listing the types of scenarios for different cyber incidents within an organization, we also consider scenarios for an actual conflict that the entire, an entire country can face and then what types of tools, products, and services the country would need or the specific organization within the country would need to withstand the particular um, 
outlawed in cyberspace that they may face from an aggressor like Russia. And I'm specifically looking at countries like like Georgia, like Belarus, that are closer to Russia and may benefit from having such multi-stakeholder incident response playbooks. Another area where we're we're learning a lot, the conflict has accelerated critical discussions about rules of engagement in cyberspace, specifically for private sector companies, specifically in conflict. Because we have international humanitarian law, but IHL pertains to states, but it doesn't cover the private sector. And now companies are starting to discuss among themselves and with governments, what are the responsibilities of these companies during conflict? Who is going to pay for these services? For how long are they supposed to provide assistance? How are they going to coordinate that assistance? What protection can they expect and from whom? So all of these questions are now being discussed on the sidelines of the Munich Security Forum and SICON. We had several very informative discussions, closed-door discussions on the topic. And I think there's that there is a lot of interest from the private sector and different governments to address these questions. But the topic is so complex that I don't think there is a playbook that's been formulated yet, but it is being formulated as we speak. What are some of the the concerns that have been brought up here? I mean, it, it seems to me like we introduce a bit of fuzziness here, quite a bit of fuzziness here, where it used to be that, in my mind anyway, these lines were more distinctly drawn. You know, your federal government, your military, they have responsibilities for these things. Um, and the private sector could assist, but it was through the military, through the federal government. As we blur these lines, what are some of the potential hazards here? Definitely physical physical harm or um, mm. harm to the infrastructure of a company, to its employees. The whole idea that companies now can be considered combatants and could can be direct targets in the conflict is, is a very significant uh, point for discussion at the moment. Another question is, for how long are companies expected to provide assistance free of charge. Some of the licenses that have been issued to Ukraine a year ago, a year and a half ago, are going to expire soon. Who is going to pick that bill? For how long are companies expected to support Ukraine? And those are significant considerations. And I, Dave, honestly, I can't blame those companies because they're not they're not governments and we shouldn't expect them to act like governments. I realize there's a corporate responsibility element to this and there is some element of altruism and there are humans that are operating these institutions, but they're profit-making institutions. Their job is not to protect citizens. Their job is to make profit. So Mm. I don't think we can expect them to be supporting Ukraine indefinitely, and governments should take that responsibility. Also because the war wasn't started by a company, it was started by a political decision and by the Kremlin. So the person or the entities that are supposed to respond to that war are political institutions as well. Where do you expect this to head then? Are we going to see frameworks drawn up? Will this become more formalized or will we have rules of the road going forward? I really hope so. And I think because of the momentum that we've gathered so far with all these discussions that are taking place, I think we will have at least a general playbook and rules that would guide the behavior of the private sector in conflicts going forward. It is going to take 
a few more months to generate that playbook because a lot of stakeholders need to be consulted. But I think we will see the formulation of better rules of engagement in cyberspace for private companies in conflict. We'll see, hopefully, a definition of what an aggressor and a victim means because in this particular conflict, it wasn't that difficult to see. Russia Mm. unilaterally, without provocation, invaded Ukraine and committed unspeakable atrocities. But what if we have a conflict where the aggressor and the victim or the attacker and the victim aren't as clear and it's harder for the international community to pick sides? So I think we'll have um, those discussions are taking place at the level of the International Red Cross, NATO, the European Union, on the sidelines of SICON and the Munich Security Conference and the Aspen Institute and others. And I think we will see in the near future the formulation of guidelines that will assist companies with making these decisions. We've certainly seen a lot of support from our allies with these efforts, and it's really been a global effort here. But what about our adversaries? How, how do you suppose they're viewing all of this? Oh, for Russia, this is like... For them, this is fantastic because they can now say that the entire NATO is against them. And the reason why Russia invaded Ukraine is because of NATO's aggressive policies. And now they clearly point the finger at us and say that we are all working together and we're a consolidated aggressor against Russia. And they're basically fighting all of NATO in Ukraine. Mm. What about China? I mean, you know, sort of on the sidelines, but more allied with Russia than us. China is uh, wise enough to try to preserve a level of neutrality, although, of course, they're not neutral, but they're trying to not directly be involved in the conflict as much as they can. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Ben, what do you think? That was really fascinating uh, to learn about the extent and, and really the heroism of some of these companies who have stepped up in a way that's not necessarily profitable to them and maybe not sustainable in the long run, right? Uh, but to do something that's that's really aiding in this effort. And I think your comparison was apt that 
Um, businesses during World War II suspended some of their normal operations uh, to contribute to the war effort. But it's it's something that's not going to be sustainable, uh, as as your interviewee said, because um, eventually it's the governments that are going to uh, need to get involved and, and take action. But yeah. it's, it was certainly really interesting. Yeah, I, just, I always enjoy my conversations with her. And um, you know, one thing that makes me wonder about is kind of where the lines are drawn when it comes to our expectations of the national defense, right? In other words, uh, you and I, you know, we're sitting here on the mainland of the United States of America, and we feel like certain things are, certain protections come from certain organizations, and those lines are very clear. Right. You know, the military defends our borders. Right. And we have an army and an air force and a navy and, and all those kinds of things. So this notion that we have this realm, this cyber realm, where we are also relying on the private sector to do a lot of the heavy lifting, I think that's an interesting uh, reality. Yeah, it's interesting and it's novel. Um, And I think there are uh, some pretty broad implications to it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, again, our thanks to Dr. Biliana Lilly for joining us. We do appreciate her taking the time. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at caveat at n2k.com. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. The show is edited by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.